We'll hear argument first this morning in case 07-1216, Philip Morris versus Williams. Mr. Shapiro. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. <clears throat> We're here today because the Oregon Court failed to follow this Court's directions on remand and because the ground it gave is not adequate to show a forfeiture of due process rights. This, va- this Court vacated after finding that the Oregon Supreme Court applied the wrong constitutional standard and it remanded with directions to apply the standard that the Court laid out. But the Oregon Court didn't do that. It never even addressed the constitutional issue. The Oregon Court, of course, refused to follow this Court's direction because it believed there were mistakes in another paragraph in our instruction request dealing with what the Court referred to as unrelated issues. But that isn't what this Court mandated. And the specific forfeiture theory adopted here for the first time after nine years of appellate litigation is completely inadequate to avoid this mandate. Mr. Shapiro, uh, we're dealing with the State Supreme Court, and our bottom line always reads, for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. And it was my understanding that a state court can resolve a case on an alternate state law ground if there is such a ground in the case. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, we believe that this disposition is quite inconsistent with what the Court mandated. Uh, the Court heard arguments uh, in this case about the correct and all respect rule, but it still mandated uh, an application of the constitutional standard, including the prohibition on punishment for harm to non-parties. And that standard simply was never applied. We say that's inconsistent with this Court's opinion. Well, but the, 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 it seems to me the problem with the argument is that to say it's inconsistent with the opinion, we implicitly have to say that the Oregon Supreme Court has to confront state law issues in a certain sequence, and that if it does not do so, those issues are waived, as it were, not only by the court, but by the party who raised it. We don't uh, and the, it, the, the difficulty, I, I think, with your position here is that on the assumption, which I do make, that the, that the, the, the issue, correct in all respect, issues was properly raised by the other side, if we accept your position, we, in effect, are saying the other side is not going to have an opportunity to argue that before the Oregon Supreme Court. Uh, and that's, it seems to me, kind of a, a uh, steep hill for you to climb. Well, we, we don't say that the Court can never adopt a state law uh, standard after remand from this Court, but we say that this disposition is inconsistent. Well, I know you're saying that, but why, why does the disposition that you are asking for not entail what I just said, and that is, uh, in effect, you cut off the claim by a party raised before the Oregon Supreme Court, not considered by the Oregon Supreme Court, and, and you cut off that claim simply because the Oregon Supreme Court uh, chose to approach the issues in the case in a certain sequence. What, what business do we have to do that? Well, because uh, the preservation issue was debated before this Court, and it adopted a specific order here saying, on remand now, uh, consider the constitutional standard, which is the prohibition on punishment I, I, for I know, I know the language that you're referring to, yes. but the referring to that language simply skips over the issue that I'm trying to raise. Isn't there a problem that we should be concerned with if we accept your position in cutting off 
a claim made by one party to the case which was never heard uh, by the Oregon Supreme Court. Well, Your Honor, this is very similar to what occurred in the Sullivan case in this Court, where the issue of preservation was de- debated before this Court uh, at the search stage in the cert papers. And the Court said, we sub silentio passed on the adequacy of the state ground when we did, DVR'd did, the case. Did, did, did the Court, um, and that's, suppose the, um, what, it, what is it called, correct in all respects, uh, had been raised and decided by the Oregon Supreme Court in the first instance. Suppose it had said, well, we don't have to deal with whether Instruction 34 was right or wrong in this particular because it was wrong in other respects. Suppose that had been the first time around what the Oregon Supreme Court said. Would that have offended any federal due process? Would that have been an appropriate disposition for the Oregon Supreme Court to make? Well, that takes us to our second and principal argument, which is that that ground would not be adequate under this Court's criteria for adequacy. And we say that, uh, that there are th- really three reasons why that would not be an adequate uh, ground for forfeiting this valuable constitutional right. Uh, it's an ambush. It was a surprise ruling that we couldn't anticipate. Uh, it's an exercise in futility, because even if we submitted a perfect instruction that complied with that rule, we would have been rejected anyway by the trial court that simply believed that this instruction wasn't required by due process. Isn't the place to make that argument in the Oregon Supreme Court? Uh, well, no, the, the Oregon's wouldn't, wouldn't it have been appropriate to, to, to hear the, 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 the issue that they are raising and for you to make the reply that you have just made? Uh, Your Honor, this Court has said repeatedly that adequacy is a federal law question for this Court I realize to it's a federal law question. Uh, and in approaching that question, I keep asking a question which I think I have now put to you three times and have yet to hear an answer on the merits on. Why is it appropriate? For us to have a rule here that cuts off the right of a party that properly raised an issue in the Oregon Supreme Court and has yet to be heard on the merits in the Oregon Supreme Court. Well, there, there are two reasons. First, under the adequacy decisions of this Court, including Lee versus Kemna, uh, if it takes years and years after the trial to articulate a forfeiture rule like this, that counts heavily against the adequacy of the state ground. This Court held that in Lee versus Kemna very recently. And then secondly, this is a point that was argued to this Court four, three, four separate times now. And when the Court remanded uh, with explicit directions to apply the Constitution, constitutional standard, uh, that's something that had to be done on remand. Uh, the Court did not invite the lower court to get into the question of whether this request was made. The Court maybe, found maybe, the maybe this made. Court insufficiently appreciated uh, the significance of the issue which is now before us. And I still want to know, is there a good reason on the merits why it is fair for us to cut off the right of the other side to raise an issue that they raise or to to argue an issue that they raised in a timely fashion. 
Yes, there's a good reason, because this is adequacy is ultimately a federal question for this Court to decide. The issue was debated here four separate times at at great length. The Court remanded for a specific decision by the lower court. That wasn't done. And if we turn to the adequacy document. Excuse me. What what, what issue was debated here four times? Uh, Whether or not uh, there was an adequate state ground because of the correct in all respects rule. That was debated in the merits brief in the cert oppositions twice. It was debated again in the cert opposition uh, this this time around. But the Court has never accepted. But the State Court hadn't ruled on it at that time. Uh, That's correct. So how how could we rule on it as a matter of first impression? Well, because, Your Honor, uh, the Court considered, just as it did in Sullivan, it considered these issues in the cert papers and then remanded the case for, for a different uh, issue to be decided by the lower court. And, but we're, we don't hesitate from debating the adequacy did, issue. Did our opinion decide that, that question? Did our opinion say that, uh, that that question was decided uh, no, against this is, your No, what opponent? the Court said in Sullivan was that it was a sub silentio determination. How could we have determined it when the Oregon Supreme Court itself hadn't made any determination? Uh, because the, the, the parties debated this extensively in their briefs. But just we don't decide questions, particularly questions of state law, that may have a federal check, but we don't decide them in the first instance. And there's one point, Mr. Shapiro, that I think is, is, uh, affects this concern of fairness to the party who raised this correct in all respects from the beginning. This Court had not clarified, has had it, until the Williams case itself, the rule about harm to others. In State Farm, we're talking about harm to non-residents. So, as if I recall correctly, Williams was the first time we ever clarified that harm to others included people within the same state. Is that correct? Uh, y- yes. That's true. This, this, as the Court expressed it, was a, a, a slight extension of the previous decisions. But, y- Your Honor, I, if, if the Court feels that this adequacy issue uh, hasn't been dealt with previously by this Court, uh, it's presented squarely here. It is a federal question, which this Court says has to be decided by this Court, and I we don't hesitate one, from one reason. One reason to think it may not have been decided is that, unlike the other situations you've discussed, it would not have been a bar to our consideration of this case the last time, because just as you raised the question in your, your second question presented, that whether the award complies with due process, we may have thought there might have been an adequate and independent state ground on a procedural question, but we were going to go ahead. We granted cert on the, the substantive question of, of whether the damages award uh, was unconstitutional. Well, Your, your Honor, if, if we're uh — if we're not right about the, the the decision resolving the adequacy issue already, we're happy to turn to it now and address it as we do in our briefs. This is not an adequate state ground under this Court's decisions. The, the first reason for that is that this is a futile gesture that the state court requires of us. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. I, I, that's the thrust of your argument. It would have been futile to comply with a specific drafting, a perfect, perfect instruction, correct in all respects. But I think of the... The record is subject to the reading that the trial judge thought the issue had already been adequately taken care of, rather than it would be an incorrect instruction. 
Well, the, uh, the trial judge uh, asked, is, is there any authority that requires me to give this instruction uh, on harmed and on parties? And we said, it, in our view, it's the BMW case. And she said, well, if there's not an authority right on point, I'm not going to give this instruction. She said that very clearly. So if we submitted a separate piece of paper, it would have made no difference. And if we'd taken out the two mistakes — Where in the record is the, the portion of the colloquy about the instructions most clearly stated? In your uh, view, and your side of, the, of that issue. Let's see. It's the instruction conference. This dis- begins on page 17A, where Mr. Beatty starts discussing uh, the second prong of this paragraph. He says, uh, he quotes the language, and the judge, uh, the judge says, well, I think that that's covered by giving an, ins- an instruction uh, the punitive damages are not compensatory. And he says, no, no, uh, that, that is not uh, — that is not the point of this instruction. This is pages 17 and 18. That's exactly the point I make. I think she, the trial judge was saying, I think it's already covered, which is very different from saying, no matter how you phrase it, I won't give it. Well, she, she said that uh, she just disagreed with the idea that uh, there should be protection against punishment for harm to non-parties. And she said, unless there's a case requiring that, I'm not going to give that instruction. And she didn't, said, didn't she also say uh, that she was going to give, and, and only did give an instruction to the effect that punitive damages are punitive, they're, they're not for the compensation of this person or any other person, and, and to, she, she then turned to Philip Morris's counsel and said, what about that? And Philip Morris's counsel said, okay. What, what he was saying when he said okay was, I understand your ruling, and I'm not going to continue to argue a point that I've already lost. But he, he pressed it, it that It doesn't sound like much of an objection. Well, the, the state courts both held, both of the appellate courts held, our instruction was rejected. And this court said it was rejected, too, in its opinion. And that's exactly right. You can't antagonize the trial judge by arguing and arguing after your position has been rejected. What, what the, the problem that I'm having at the moment is that they did, from your point of view, is that they, the other side listed 28 cases in which they said the Oregon uh, courts have followed this rule of the instruction has to be good as a whole. Now, I've looked up those 28 cases, and they do, they do say that. They do say it, or they imply it, or they apply it. They're not completely in point. They're not completely out of point either. And, and so I suppose what happened is that the judge there just looked at this instruction on 32A. It looks like sort of it's all together. It really does look like it's all together the one and the two, and he ran his eye down the page, and he said, well, here are two other ways in which it's no good. And so uh, that's the end of it. You can't raise your objection. Maybe you should have had four instructions instead of one, but you did just have one. And under Oregon law, unless every part of it is right, the judge is correct in not giving it, even if he never mentions the other part. And that 28, it does seem as if that's what those 28 cases do say. So what do we say about that? The, the reason we say that those 28 cases did not give us reasonable notice that we had to submit a separate piece of paper or change another paragraph in the instruction request is that none of them dealt with a situation where you have separately numbered requests. Well, I mean, please. I don't want to appear skeptical, but I am. And, and that's because I looked up in some of those cases, and then I sort of looked at the — which doesn't — most of them don't give you the instruction, so it's a little hard to say. But then I look on page 32A of, of this appendix and looked at what your instruction looked like. And, and if I were sitting there as a judge, I'd think, well, gee, that looks like a, a single thing there. They have it indented. They have 
a one and a two, and, and it just looks like it's a one ball of wax. So can I really fault this Oregon court for just doing what I said? Well, I, th- I think so, because the pattern instruction here told both parties to include all their paragraphs pertaining to punitive damages in one numbered instruction, 34. Well, they have some other handbook that says beware of that. Yes. And to run into this uh, rule that says if there's any part of a single instruction that's wrong, goodbye, even but, if the trial judge never mentioned it. Uh, but that handbook came out in 2006, and after all, that was a practice tip. It wasn't the state court ruling saying you had to organize your instruction this way. Uh, we had separate paragraphs, separately numbered. They dealt with different issues. One was the Constitution, and the other was the state statute. And there's no Oregon case that said that in that situation, you have to break it out into a separate piece of paper. I thought the notion was one issue, one charge. And it wasn't in just one practice manual. There were a few cited in the brief that the charge should be limited to one issue, one point of law. Well, the pattern instructions told us to put every point pertaining to uh, punitive damages in an instruction number 34. Both sides did that, and the court was working with plaintiff's instruction, uh, taking their pro- But it would be pretty odd that the person who wrote that read these 28 cases or some share thereof. And if you were going to do that, if it, were, it wasn't you, I know, why, why wouldn't you just, if you can have one instruction, copy the, the, uh, uh, Model instruction, then you won't make errors in the other parts. Well, you, you see, the the, pat, the pattern instruction didn't include the due process point. We, that's true, but you could add that to the pattern. That's what we tried to do, and the, the judge invited us while dealing with the other side's instruction to go through this one by one. Uh, she she was asking us now, what's your next addition? And we we got to the uh, the due process point, and she said, what is your authority? We told her, and she said, I don't think that instruction is necessary. It was separately argued. Uh, it was separately decided by the state courts uh, in the prior decisions, uh, decided by this court as, as a separate matter. And that is exactly how the trial court approached this. Her request was to go through this item by item. Uh, she wasn't taking an all-or-nothing approach to this instruction. She started with plaintiff's document and asked what from our menu of additions was uh, not necessary. I'm of this from the point of view. I mean, I, when I read that petition for cert, I thought this is a runaround. And I'm not sure I think that now. That is, and the, the, the reason is because I put myself in the position of not the trial judge. The person to put yourself in the position of is the Oregon Supreme Court Justice. And what he's doing is he's reading that instruction. And, and what can you say in response to what, what he might have thought? He knows this rule. The rule is if an instruction is, is unfavorable in any part, if it's wrong, you're out. Well, he knows that rule because there have been a lot of cases on it. And then he reads your instruction, and if I look carefully, I didn't know this the first time when it was here. But he said because it's right in paragraph one, uh, I mean, it's wrong in paragraph one, where he was wrong, uh, I don't have to go to the rest of it. Yes. Now we send it back, so he says, okay, now I've got to go to the rest of it. You know, Justice Breyer, this is very similar to what was at issue in the Flowers case, which reached this court. The Alabama Supreme Court had said, if you intermix uh, different appeal points in your brief, we're not going to consider any of them if there are any errors to be found in any of the paragraphs uh, in the brief. And I thought that the whole thing about this is the NAACP case that you're discussing, that this was something that the Alabama Supreme Court really sprung at the 
uh, last minute that it was not like this rule. There were not 28 cases in the Alabama Supreme Court applying the rule. It was, seemed to be quite a novel rule. Well, what, what the uh, State argued there was that for 60 years, the correct in all respects rule was in effect in Alabama, and they cited dozens of cases applying it. But this Court unanimously held that that approach was pointless severity, even though the State Supreme Court there said, we can't disentangle these arguments. It's too complicated. It's too much of a burden on this State Supreme Court. This Court unanimously found that was pointless severity. And if that's pointless severity — There was a basis for questioning the good faith of the Court in that case, I think. Well, uh, I don't think that's true here. I, I, we don't question the good faith of the court, but we say that this is pointless severity, a rule that this court has applied more recently in Lee versus Chemna, where there is no issue of, of bad faith. Uh, the court thought that it was pointlessly severe and unnecessarily severe uh, to insist on a perfect uh, proposal in that case. The, and the best you've here. come up with, and I think you've researched this pretty thoroughly, and the best you've come up with to find a case where they didn't apply the rule is that Georgia case, right? George, I think, is the name of it. And there, there is an alternative ground, which is that the judge have, had to give the instruction himself. And it's a criminal case. And we shepherdized it, and it's only been cited twice. Uh, and, and so I'm slightly at sea, to tell you the truth, and, and, and what is the standard I'm supposed to use to decide whether that state ground is adequate for, as a matter of federal law or not? Well, there, there is an earlier case that's interesting, State versus Brown, which comes uh, several years before it's cited in our brief. In that case, an imperfect instructional request was made, and the Court still found that there was a duty uh, to give uh, the instruction uh, based on due process. And the reason was that the parties during the charge conference had debated uh, the issue. It was a fair enough uh, exposition for the trial court to understand the need uh, for the charge. And here, this really is much like the Osborne case. You know, in the Osborne case, the defendant didn't make any instructional proposal, and this Court still reversed and required a new trial uh, with the correct instruction. It said due process required that. And the Court said that, we, that the party had sufficiently brought this to the attention of the trial judge for federal adequacy purposes, uh, even though no instruction was, was proposed. The lawyer there merely moved to dismiss the proceeding, never proposed an instruction. But this Court required a retrial with the correct uh, set of instructions for the jury. That's an a fortiori case, I think. And also the Flowers case, I believe, is a fortiori. There really was a strong and compelling state interest there in having the lawyers break their arguments up into separate headings and subheadings so the appellate court could follow the argument. But here, there wasn't any burden placed on the trial judge at all by our request. She was going through these one by one, and she asked us, what's your next point that you want added? We proposed it. It was on a silver platter. She didn't have to retype it. She could have uh, simply read it to the jury in that form. It didn't have to be edited or amended. There literally was no burden on the trial judge at all. And so she didn't get to the the other grounds because I think it was all about that paragraph and whether that paragraph was adequate under our then precedent. And I don't think that the the, the incorrect portions of the charge that have now are now before us were, bef- were even reached then. 
Well, she, she did look at the uh, illicit profits point, and she said, I'm not going to give that. That's unnecessary. She, did, she didn't address the may versus shall issue uh, because she was working with plaintiff's proposal. So all, really, she just had before her our request for this due process instruction. She analyzed it separately. It was debated before her. And this is much more specific than what the lawyers did uh, in the Osborne case. They didn't even propose an instruction. We served it up on a silver platter. She could have used it. And, indeed, there was no work for the trial judge at all because she was simply telling the lawyers, make this change, make that change that we've discussed. So there is zero burden on the court. And you have to ask in this situation, what is the legitimate state interest that would support this massive forfeiture of a very important due process right. The plaintiff says the state interest here is that it promotes affirmance of jury verdicts, whether or not there's been a due process violation. But think about that. That's hardly a state interest. It's state interest in the rule in general, I take it, is to require the lawyers if they're going to object to the instructions that the judge is going to give, to produce an instruction that's a correct instruction of the law. That's, that's why I guess they have this rule. Oh, yes. And, and you better get it right, because if you don't get it right, you're going to lose your ability to claim that the judge was wrong in refusing to give any part of it. Now, if that's the reason they have that rule, that would seem to apply as much in this case as in any other case. Why wouldn't it? Well, please recall that in both Osborne and in the, the Lee case, there was a general state purpose of that kind uh, that supported the rule. But the Court said it was an exorbitant or unnecessarily severe application of the rule. And that's what we contend here, that this is exorbitant. It serves no legitimate purpose. It is truly a game of gotcha that just nullifies the defendant's due process rights. And that precedent, I think, would be of great concern in various fields of law. This is an, a, a rule of law that will apply in civil rights cases in the future, criminal cases, all sorts of cases. Uh, so I, I think if this Court does apply its own criteria here, it'll see that this was an exercise in futility. It was an ambush as a practical matter. We didn't have any reason to think we had to submit this again on a separate piece of paper. You just tell me, why was it an exercise in futility? That's what I don't quite understand. Oh, be- because the judge had ruled as a matter of substantive law that she wasn't going to give this instruction, it wouldn't matter she if thought we separated she said that, that. She thought it was already covered. That's what I see on that very page you pointed me to. Yeah, well, she, she said that was all she was going to say about the point. And we said, well, that doesn't cover our point because we want protection against punishment for harm to non-parties. And she said, I'm not going to give that instruction. I deny the rest of your request, number 34. And, and, and where is this colloquy? I mean, we went through the part. She said, I think it's covered, and then there was okay. Uh, you seem to be saying more than was included in that colloquy. Well, I, th- I think if, if you look at that whole colloquy, uh, that's the gist of it. I've, I've paraphrased it. But, You've made uh, it much clearer than it was. Uh, perhaps, perhaps I did. But I, I would just point out that Osborne, the lawyer, didn't make it clear at all. The lawyer didn't even propose an instruction. We proposed a good instruction that this Court has, has quoted from, emphasizing our language, saying it, saying it correctly captures the due process principle. So that is enough to satisfy federal uh, criteria uh, of adequacy, and, and uh, that is sufficient to preserve the point. There's no dispute that this is preserved for appellate purposes uh, in Oregon. Uh, unless the Court has further questions, I, I would reserve the balance of our time. Thank you, Mr. Shapiro. Mr. Peck. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court's constitutional mandate 
in this case is conditioned in several significant respects, and it invites the discretion and judgment of a state court that's applying it. First of all, it says that states have flexibility in coming up with a procedure to address this procedural due process issue. It also says that it has to be an appropriate case, there has to be a significant risk of juror confusion, and a request. There's no indication in the opinion that this Court intended to federalize the state procedure over how that request occurs. If you don't dispute that it's a federal question whether that procedure is uh, adequate in it. I do not, but I also submit that it is more than adequate. Exi- what the Oregon Supreme Court decided was that the existing procedure permitting a limiting instruction to be requested, in Oregon it's Rule 105, the same language as in the federal rule, and, um, and such a request has to be timely, it has to be specific, it has to be on the record. And Oregon precedent says that when we mean specific, the proponent has to give us the exact language. This is part of the party presentation principle, the exact language that they're asking us to use. And that means that we also apply our traditional 92-year-old rule that requests for instruction must be clear and correct in all respects. This is is a problem. I said the 28 cases are not quite as clear as I suggested. That is, I couldn't find in those 28 cases really a comparable situation. In each instance, it seemed as if one of two things was the case. Mm -hmm. Either A, where the er instruction was in error, it really was the matter brought up in the first place, or the Court said, but he gave the essence of the instruction you wanted anyway. Now, which of those cases do you think — I'm, I'm leading up to what, what are those cases you think is your best support? Because I, I, I couldn't I — they're not perfect. I would look first at Reyes Camarena, which is a 2000, uh, a 2000 decision uh, involving the death penalty. And there, there were two parts of this request in a single request. The request asked for a mitigating factors instruction — which the Court found was correct on the law and and would have been given had it been asked for separately. But it also asked the jury to consider sympathy for the defendant, which they found to be contrary to Oregon law, and therefore it was not error for the trial court to have refused this. What you can't tell from that is what was the part of the sympathy instruction that they thought was wrong, and was the part that they thought was wrong really part and parcel of the part that the uh, uh, that the appellant was complaining about? Well, well, the court though did cite a prior decision that talked about a sympathy instruction and claimed that this one was no different than that, and it was contained in a single instruction. It makes clear the opinion does on that. Owings versus Rose is another case which both parties have cited. And in Owings, um, it's very clear. There you have two different parts of an instruction that are offered at the same time, and, and one part is right. Uh, this, this one deals with third-party liability. Yeah, but that, that's the one where they 
they said, I remember that, because they said on that one, they, it was some floor covering thing, was it, that, that they had uh, some liability for bad floors or designing the floors wrong. This, this, this That's the case. An what they said was, don't worry about it, because basically he did give the instruction that you wanted, though, in a different way. But, and besides that, but they besides had. that, yeah, and, and, and this right. was an alternate ground. Then in, in Hotling versus Walther, 1944 case, the proposed instruction consists of three separate uh, sentences, and the court does reprint that instruction. And each of those sentences had a different legal proposition in it. And it was only the last sentence, the third proposition, that the court found to be an error, and therefore found that there was no error in failing to give this instruction because it was not clear and correct in all respects. I, I think that that well, the last one, they say what I have here is that the Court said the so-called re- requested instruction was never requested at all. But, at all. But I do not believe that that was the ground. What is the, the what is the, I'll, I'll go look at that again, but what, what is the standard? I mean, remember, what I think your brother said at the end is correct. Imagine that yours is a death case. And we have said as a matter of federal law that this execution is unconstitutional. And then we send it back. And the court then says, oh, we forgot. There are a couple of matters of state law here that bar the federal consideration of the death question. And here they are. And then they come up with just this. Well, is this, is this a situation where you would be equally, uh, that's my problem. And so put yourself in, in my shoes and, and tell me what you would do if this is the death case and not the case that you have. Well, you know, uh, it's hard to get my arms around your hypothetical because I don't know the grounds on which you Just imagining that that what's happened is that the instruction that they've given uh, uh, for the uh, defendant in the death case violates federal law. And then we send it back, and what happens is that the state court says, oh, uh, it may violate federal law all right, but it's the federal courts blocked from considering it because there are these two other state grounds that mean that the lawyer. I understand. Uh, yeah, okay. But, but the, the, the question would be then, why would that be a situation like this where the trial judge, con- contrary to your assumption, uh, Justice Ginsburg, the trial judge did find that there were other parts of the instruction offered by Philip Morris that were incorrect on the law, and the illicit profits was one of them. Why didn't that the trial the judge just stop then? I mean, if this is the rule in this the is state, the, once, once the trial judge found that one of the other instructions was bad, he could have just said, I throw the whole thing out. Why did he go through all the trouble of going into this, uh, the, the governing one? This, this is a process. A counsel in a case in a trial in Oregon, can offer instruction, a, a, a proffered instruction, up to the point when the jury is instructed under their law. So Philip Morris had the opportunity to correct it. The practical nature of a charge conference is that the parties come in with their proposed instruction. The plaintiffs followed the pattern instruction, which, by the way, does not require enumeration. You, you, you are acknowledging that the trial court did not apply the rule. The tri- it is not we- a rule of trial procedure. It's a rule of appellate review. Well, I, th- yes, that's exactly right. And I think the purpose for the rule is to avoid confusion about the ground of decision for the trial court. If you've got 
two errors, and she says um, the instruction's no good. On appellate review, you don't know which basis was at issue. There's no d- doubt here uh, uh, the, the basis on which the trial court was ruling, is there? I believe there's, there's there, first of all, the trial judge rejected this instruction on multiple grounds. And, and, and made it clear that the, she, the illicit profits request was contrary to the Oregon statute that sets up the, the criteria. She found other parts confusing and uh, contradictory. But, and, and, uh, but uh, there are two things I think that are significant here. You have to look at what was discussed here. The trial judge, if you turn to 21A of the uh, joint appendix, we are not here to punish for other plaintiffs' harms. We are here to punish, if we are here to punish at all, for the conduct that caused harm to Jesse Williams on or after September 1, 1988. This sounds very much like an acceptance of the rule that Philip Morris was advocating. On 19A, she said, these punitive damages are not designed to compensate for other plaintiffs who are not here. On 20A, there is a colloquy. She expresses her belief that the risk is adequately guarded against, suggests language to express that, and asks, does that get you where you need to be? That's when Philip Morris's counsel says, okay. She had every reason to believe that she had satisfied them. She then follows up. Do we give any weight in the case to the fact that the instruction that the Petitioners now request, um, and the rule, uh, had not really been announced clearly as of the time of this trial. This is not exactly a new rule, but let's, for, for I, our I, sake, we'll, we'll call it a new rule. Do, does that have any weight? I don't think it does. Well, it does, it, but it, it does in our cause and, and prejudice jurisprudence in habeas, which is also a civil action. I, I understand. We say there's an overarching federal principle that, uh, uh, allows, uh, because of cause and prejudice, we can, we can consider the federal issue. We do that all the time. Uh, that, those, those cases weren't raised by, by the uh, petitioners, but it, it seems to me they're quite relevant here, especially when we consider the importance of the constitutional issue, which would not really, let's face it, clear to, to counsel on either side of the aisle or to the trial judge. Well, here, here's the reason why I think in the context of this record, and, and, and this litigant, it is not significant. And that is, if you look at 21A, the appendix in our, our merit brief, there we have Philip Morris in another smoker trial in Oregon offering up a requested instruction on this issue. This is in 2002, so it's well before this Court's decision um, in this case. It's even before State Farm versus Campbell. And the requested instruction says, one sentence, you are not to impose punishment for harm suffered by persons other than the plaintiff before you. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but the trial judge didn't have the benefit of, of, of the ruling that this Court has subsequently made on that point. The trial judge, in fact, here said, now, if you can give me a, a case, then I'll give the instruction. You can't give me a case. And she was right. But, but, she, but that's actually not the same issue that she asked that on. Uh, counsel cited page 17A of the Joint Appendix for that question. And the, if you look at the bottom of 16A, her question is, let me stop first and go back to the proportionality point you are making. So this is the ratio point, the second guidepost of BMW versus Gore. 
She says, is there a case law that says the trial court shall, in order to have a constitutional instruction, tell the jury about proportionality? And this is where he says, it's addressed post-verdict. She asks, is there any case law? And she says, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go where no judge has gone before because she did not want to be reversed. Um, so she is trying to be careful. And I think you have to credit the well, argument. But I, it sounds to me like you're confirming my concern. No, I, I think that, that what she said is uh, as to the proportionality issue. On the other issue, she even returns to it later when Philip Morris brings up a different issue with respect to punitive oh, damages. Oh, you're, you're, you're saying that if our law had been clear, uh, at the time that she still wouldn't have given the instruction? No, I mean, that's I, I'm saying that she thought she was complying with that. She stated on the record that we are not here to punish for other plaintiffs' harms. Later on that other issue, if you look at 28A. So your, your contention is, is that this trial uh, court and the counsel in the case had all the guidance necessary to uh, give the correct instruction? She seemed to accept. Before we even announced the rule? She accepted the point before you announced the rule and the Oregon Court of Appeals in the estate of Schwartz case where they offered that one-sentence instruction reversed the verdict in part because that instruction, they said, should have been given. So they anticipated this court's rule. I think it, this to move To move from the trial court to the appellate court, if you're correct that there's this routine clear rule of state procedure, why would the appellate court say in its head, well, I could rely on that, uh, uh, but I want to decide this complicated, difficult rule of federal constitutional law instead? Well, in fact, the, the court thought it was relying on it. In each of the previous iterations in the Oregon Court of Appeals and in the Oregon Supreme Court, they cited this rule, clear and correct in all respects, in order to reject the harm to others' instruction because they said it was inconsistent with state law. So this you point, think we just made a mistake in going ahead and reaching the federal procedural rule that we reached because it was barred by this adequate and independent state ground? that the Oregon courts had relied upon? No. What I'm saying is that they went further then. And this is what gave this court the authority to rule on that substantive issue. They said that that request was inconsistent with the Oregon statute. Um, and they did so um, on page 48A of the petition, where they say in Williams 1, the Court of Appeals concluded that the Instruction was incorrect under state law. We agree. And then, again, on page 52A, they, they note that that is not correct as an independent matter of Oregon law respecting the conduct of jury trials well, and instructions well, for then I, jury I think trials. I think but, your answer — I'll go ahead with your butt. But then they went on to say, and nothing in due process requires us to look at this differently. That's where they made their error. That was the constitutional mistake that the Oregon court made. They thought they were relying on a state ground. They thought there was no federal issue addressing that. And so they decided that they didn't have to reach any other state law issues. And they ignored the well-preserved objections that Mrs. Williams made to the other parts of this unified instruction on punitive damages. Well, I'm sorry, I still don't see that answer. You're saying they said, yes, there was this rule of Oregon law, but you can still reach, there might still be a federal due process issue, so we can't just rely on that. 
And if that's true, then that seems to me to be a concession that this is not an adequate and independent state ground that would bar consideration of the Federal constitutional issue. What was not an adequate and independent state ground was their decision that the Oregon statute, which permits you to punish a misconduct in order to deter others from doing that, allowed punishment for harm to non-parties. That part was their interpretation of the statute, and if there were no due process equation here, that would have been an independent state ground. It was wrong as a matter of due process. But there are other grounds, other mistakes, substantive mistakes of Oregon law in this instruction. And any trial court that gave instruction number 34, which was objected to as a whole, would have committed reversible error because they failed to follow the Oregon statute. I guess I think it's the more routine practice for a court if you have a, again, as you argue, a clear procedural rule that bars addressing the substantive issue to go ahead and rely on that. Uh, Now, if the procedural rule is difficult and of uncertain application, maybe you go ahead and say, well, we're going to decide the merits anyway. But it seems to me under your presentation it's the other way around. It's a clear and easy procedural rule difficult uh, federal and state intertwined constitutional rule, and yet the Court says, well, I'm going to go do the hard work rather than the easy work. I think it was natural for the Court to do that. That was the issue presented to them by Philip Morris, and courts do not reach out to do other issues. They they, They were being solicitous of Philip Morris, and they were addressing the arguments that Philip Morris made. And when they decided that that inured to Mrs. Williams' benefit, not to Philip Morris's benefit, then they said, we don't need to address your other questions. And I think you have to look at the Oregon Supreme Court as noting in their own decision that there was no futility here. In fact, last time we were here, Philip Morris said the reason they needed this instruction was because of what was said at closing right, argument. So what, what are the elements? Uh, imagine that if I'm trying to get help and if I were to try to put pen to paper mm-hmm. on this. Because suppose they win in this. Then then we'll be back at the state law issue that I thought was going to be there, which was the issue of you're talking about the colloquy. Did they give the essence of the federal mandated instruction or didn't they? And then look how cooperative the judge was, et cetera. But that isn't before us now. What's before us now is something that blocks right. our consideration of that or anybody's consideration of that. Mm-hmm. And, and imagine this is not your case. Imagine it is uh, the most, uh, uh, you know, Striking case, that's why I used a, a death example. And we go through exactly the same thing, and then the court does exactly the same thing, the state court that happened here. And, and, and now what are the words that distinguish whether the court is, in essence, to be colloquial, giving everybody the runaround, or whether the court is applying a, a uh, absolute, clear, you know, fair standard of state law, which really they should have gone into first and saved everybody a lot of trouble. I I think the easiest way to look at this is imagine that the statute of limitations, which now bars any such suit in Oregon, were brought today after this Court's decision in Williams. Mm -hmm. And imagine that Philip Morris is the defendant, and at the end of the trial, they offer their number 34 as it was before, saying this Court uh, said that they had made the right choice in, in asking for this instruction. A trial court clearly would engage in reversible error if they gave that instruction because it materially departs from Oregon law. Mm. At the same time, they could deny that instruction. They could deny that instruction, and the Oregon Supreme Court would not violate the mandate of this Court's decision 
by saying that that is a correct decision on the part of the trial court because it was not clear and correct in all respects. And that is part of what distinguishes this. This is still a rule that has to apply to this instruction. Well, what they are saying is, look, look at the two errors they found. One is in saying may instead of shall, and the other is in saying illicit profit instead of profit, and they're pretty picky. So this is, so this is very picky, they say. And moreover, not only are they being picky, but they're being picky after the event. And they could have raised it first, and they have 28 cases supporting them, but none of these cases is right on point because the subject matter is, you know, not a closer bound up. And so they put all those together and say it's an unreasonable application of a rule that was there. And you say? I would urge you, Justice Breyer, to look at the original case in 1960, the Sorensen case. There the Court was faced with the question, is if there's the kernel of a correct instruction in there, is that adequate to ask the Court to give that instruction, or should we insist on what they thought at the time was the majority rule in the United States, that we should insist on an instruction that's clear and correct in all respects, and that the that the uh, Council has the responsibility to provide that. And they decided to go with the clear and correct rule. That was the debate that they had. And that debate informs this one. Well, Sorensen was the agent and the principal, the broker, who was selling some land. Right. And I think in that case they also said, by the way, you got basically the instruction that you wanted, and you overlooked — no, that was the case where they said you overlooked in your instruction an important allegation of fact, which allegation was that the, right. uh, the guy had uh, been rehired uh, as a broker. And, and, and there's a, a similar distinction that makes Osborne irrelevant, which uh, counsel had suggested was a, uh, uh, an exemplar here. Um, Osborne an element of the crime had not been instructed upon. That's why there didn't have to be the offer of an instruction. But the party presentation principle puts the onus on counsel to do so, and Philip Moore showed in 2002, well before this Court's decisions, that they know how to do it when they want to. Mr. Peck, are, are, you, uh, are you asserting that our remand order was in error? After all, it did say we remand this case so that the Oregon Supreme Court can apply the standard we have set forth. And I, I contend, Your Honor, that the Oregon You say it was an error. I mean, no, nothing wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> I, I think — If you say it's an error, my, my, my next question uh, is, is, is going to be uh, — I think the Oregon Supreme can, Court can, read that is seriously. Is it up to the state court and, to and sit in judgment about whether our remand orders uh, are an error or not? Well, I, I'm prepared to say that the Oregon Supreme Court took that remand order to mean that they had to have in place, this was a procedural due process decision, that they had to have a procedure that was fair, outcome neutral, applied That's what they took it to mean, they, 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 they were just wrong. That, I mean, that's not what it says. Well, if you the, the opinion concludes, as the preceding discussion makes clear, we believe the Oregon Supreme Court applied the wrong constitutional standard. When considering Philip Morris's appeal, and when, when it goes to the constitutional issue we're talking about, when considering we demand so that the Oregon Supreme Court can apply the standard we have set forth, which has nothing to do with the issue we've been discussing this morning. Your, your, your Honor, so it was wrong. No, it was not wrong. I don't think it was wrong, and here's the reason why I don't think it was wrong. You corrected the Oregon Supreme Court when they thought due process does not inform the analysis on harm to non-parties. 
You corrected that substantive error, and that part is what they got wrong. Much of this opinion said that they got lots of other things right. And so Oregon looked at it and said, okay, we got that issue wrong, but there are other problems with this instruction that are adequate and independent grounds. It's very nice, but that's not what we remanded for. You did not remand for that, but when this Court decides the constitutional issue of one part, it doesn't necessarily tell the Court anything different. What the essence of this Court's opinion is that where there's a significant risk of jury confusion, the State has to provide a procedure and has flexibility in deciding that procedure. There is no indication that the procedure for limiting instructions does not satisfy that. The, the, the problem that, that I, I think we, we all have is how do we guard, in effect, guard against making constitutional decisions which are simply going to be nullified uh, by some uh, clever device uh, raising a procedural issue or, or an issue of state law when the case goes back. Is there any way for us to ensure against, uh, a, in effect, a, a bad faith response to our decision, except by purporting to require the state courts to follow a certain order of battle in the, in the, in the decision of issues before them so that when the case gets to us, we can be assured that there is no lurking issue that has not yet been decided as a matter of state law that, in effect, could then be resurrected to, to nullify our decision. Is there any way to guard against that except by telling the state courts what the sequence is in which they have to make I, decisions? I believe there is. And I believe that it would be error to suggest to the state Supreme Court that they must, even though prudent, uh, follow a particular sequence, simply because that would mean that they would have to necessarily decide every state law issue. I, 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 you, I, I see the, the problem. I mean, that's but, why I raised the but, question. But, how do we but do But we do that all the time in, cause, we, and, in cause and prejudice uh, cases. We do it all the time. Yes. But, uh, because, but, because of the importance of the constitutional right. I understand that. But I think the adequate and independent state law ground provides all the protection. You assume, and I think properly so, that state Supreme Courts will operate in good faith. Even in Flowers, after the fourth trip to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, uh, Alabama Supreme Court was still trusted to apply the Okay, so your, your, your answer is there, there is there is no way to guard against it except, except by reviewing the good faith of what the Court does on remand. Well, uh, by, by accepting that if the rule that has been imposed was invoked properly by the party that invoked it at the right time, yeah. that it is firmly established and regularly followed, then it should satisfy the court. But it, but it serves very little interest. Uh, nothing the trial judge would have done, nothing the plaintiff's counsel would have done below, nothing the intermediate appellate court would have done would have, would have been different if they'd submitted the, what, what's it called, the, the uh, correct in all respect rule. If they'd have followed the correct in all respect rule and submitted, say, oh, excuse me, judge, I want to type a little piece of paper. Uh, Everything would have been the same. I suggest that it would be different. I think the Oregon Supreme Court decided when they decided that there was no futility in offering another one, that it would be different. And the fact of the matter is that he I excluded the Oregon Supreme Court from my list of the uh, participants who would have done something uh, differently. But, but but the fact of the matter is, if after closing arguments, which was the trigger that Philip Morris urged upon this Court, 
for needing this substantive rule, if that — if after that the Philip Morris's counsel had returned to the judge, you know, they said a few things that we think would tell the jury to punish for harm to others. We don't think the instruction's adequate. We will give you the same instruction, that one-sentence instruction that we gave in Estate versus Schwartz. Counsel, I believe there, the Court would have given it. There, there is, of course, another way to protect our constitutional authority in this case. We're talking about procedures for addressing the uh, substantive due process challenge to a punitive damages award. That's the second question presented here. If we went and granted that question and considered that issue, we would have protected our authority to reach that question despite the procedural objections below. Why don't we just do that? Well, Your Honor, of course, last time we were here, you had full briefing and even some argument on that. Um, and I, I believe that uh, we are prepared to stand on that uh, briefing and argument. We do not believe the due process clause um, is an exercise in elementary school mathematics. It does not tell you something about this. Here you have to look at the enormity of the misconduct, and that dictates the, I'm the not, I'm not asking award. you to argue here today the second question presented, but if we have some concern that there's something malodorous about the fact that the Oregon Supreme Court waited till the last minute to come up with this rule that was before it all the time, which was a state court rule that you would expect the state court uh, uh, to be uh, addressing uh, as a matter of course, then, then we, we can avoid having to address what we do in a situation, having to characterize the nature of that, that consideration, simply by saying, look, we're going to go ahead. The question's presented. Uh, we can decide it in this case, and to avoid having to reach that, we'll go ahead and do it. Well, it, it's certainly within this Court's power to do that. Um, Philip Morse has made a very harsh accusation in this case of bad faith on the part of the Oregon Supreme Court. Uh, there was no sandbagging here. The Oregon Court did not act in bad faith. Mrs. Williams uh, raised these state law issues at every opportunity, which is something that Philip Morse denied in their petition, but then conceded in their merit brief. Um, and the fact is it was before the Oregon Court of Appeals. It was before the Oregon Supreme Court. We even raised it before this Court. You, you, um, in answer to the Chief Justice, you're not suggesting that we should go ahead and decide the second question when there's been no briefing on it. I, I, I am not suggesting that you decide the question, but I recognize the Court has the power to do so. Um, in MAP versus Ohio came to this court as a First Amendment case and came out as a Fourth Amendment case. I, I thought, just to follow up, I thought you just told me that there's been full and adequate briefing on that question. Uh, I believe we had full and adequate briefing. We may not have had the opportunity to fully argue the case, and it's for you to decide whether or not you, you have enough on that. I thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Shapiro, you have three minutes remaining. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Justice Breyer asked about these various cases from Oregon and whether they provided guidance and a warning here. And counsel refer referred to three cases, Rias, uh, Owings, and then Sorensen. If you look at those cases, you'll see there were simple instructions proposed on a single topic that were infected with an error throughout. And the Court said if there's any valid portion of this instruction, it was covered by something that was said to the jury already. So there was no harm in not giving that instruction. That is certainly not our case. We ha have a separately numbered paragraph dealing with the Constitution, uh, which is quite apart from the statutory factors. Now, counsel referred to the charge
charge actually given by the court as if it provided some protection against uh, punishment for harm to non-parties. If you read that instruction, far from providing the protection that the, this court said was obligatory, it invited uh, global punishment. It told the jury that they could return any punitive damage award up to $100 million. Lo and behold, they come up with $80 million, right within the suggested range uh, of this charge. And there was no Which state. portion of the charge specifically are you referring to? This is page uh, 37A of our joint appendix. The, the court concludes the amount of punitive damages you assess may not exceed the sum of $100 million. And that, of course, was the zone of reasonableness that the jury inferred from this, uh, suggesting a global punishment to the jury with no protection. Now, this court said that that protection has to be provided. The court said the state must insist that the state must give assurance. And it's an important constitutional right, as Justice Kennedy said. And I, I don't think the state court what is your What is your response to the Chief Justice's suggestion that maybe we should reach the uh, issue of due process on the amount? Well, we, we wouldn't oppose that because this is clearly excessive under what the Court said in State Farm, where there's substantial compensatory damages. One-to-one -one is something of a norm. Uh, I, don't, I wasn't asking you to argue it either, but, I mean, I suppose the procedure the parties would prefer, if we were interested in that, would be for us to grant the second question and then have the normal briefing and consideration. Oh, that, that yes, certainly, that, that, that is true. Uh, uh, I, I would comment, too, on Justice Breyer's question about what is the ultimate test here. The Court has stated various criteria and opinions over the last century, but the, the key ideas are, was it an ambush, something that couldn't be anticipated? I mean, I'll tell you my subjective reaction going through these 38 cases is they're not quite in point, but I really take away the idea of the bad faith, particularly because the first time what the judge said, which I didn't understand its significance then, was the judge said, well, since the first part of that paragraph one was in, was in error anyway, I don't have to reach the questions of whether there were other mistakes under state law and the rest of the instruction. They did say that the first time, I think. Oh, yes, but this is the first time the Court has ever taken this correct in all respects rule and extended it to a completely different topic, U.S. constitutional law, in a separately numbered paragraph. And we had no notice that this had to be broken out in a separate piece of paper. If we did, we would have broken it out in a separate piece of paper. It's just like Lee against Kemna, where the Court said — What about the point that was made that in 2002, that's exactly what Philip Morris did, gave one simple, precise instruction? Well, you know, that instruction — was not harm to non-parties. That was harm for out-of-state injuries. It was a different issue. And it's true the lawyers there did break up their instructions differently, but the pattern instruction is — Is it true that they gave one simple sentence stating their position on, on what harm to others, how that could no, that's not true. That case did not accept our instruction. It did not. It accepted the State Farm instruction, which said that there can't be punishment for out-of-state harm. But, but was the instruction stated in a, in a single paragraph with all the other requests to charge broken out? Yes, this, this State Farm instruction was broken out. That's an option for lawyers. But under the pattern instruction, it's quite proper to put them all in one instructional basket. Uh, that's what the form instruction said. That's what both parties here did. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. We thank the Court.